0: Hey there, everybody. I am really delighted to be here today with a wonderful guest, Vanessa Perry. And I got to meet Vanessa when she invited me to be on her podcast, Stigmas Anonymous. And Vanessa and I hit it off so well. It was like, oh my God, we have to have more of a conversation. Please come and join me. So Vanessa is a career mental health therapist turned intuitive holistic counselor. With a belief that our troubles are rooted and treated beyond just the mind, she offers an open and accepting place for clients to explore non traditional practices for healing and empowerment. From the medical model to witchcraft and everything in between, Vanessa enjoys helping men and women expand into abundance and soul led living. That just sounds awesome. Welcome, yes. Vanessa. <laughs> I'm so
1: glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I I mean, it it really is uh, an honor. I feel like anytime anybody wants to hear your story or hear your input and share it with their audience, but I really did feel that way when I chose to reach out and ask you to be online. Oh, please, please, please. You know, like this is something that I need to, this is a person that I need to connect with. And I was right. You know, like it's like as soon as you came on, I thought, yes, like I I knew it. You know, I knew it. Um, So I'm just really honored to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you here. And one of the reasons why, aside from the fact that you're just awesome, that I really wanted to have you on the show was because I wanted to talk about the impact of being a mental health therapist, what being a psychotherapist does to us as empaths. Yeah. (laughs) And Because you know, I'm the daughter of an empath psychotherapist, you know, actually. And, you know, while my father didn't necessarily, I look back and I think about my dad, and I realize in many ways he was also, you know, he didn't appear to be highly sensitive, but that was because of a frontal lobe brain injury. But I think that in many ways he manifested his sensitivity through a lot of activity. He was a Virgo, but he was a social worker. So I grew up with two people in the human service field watching the impact of being an empath. And I think it's something that we really need to talk about because it does like bottom line, it's like, if this is left untended, it turns into burnout for sure. So I really want to have this conversation. And I always like to start at the very beginning. I always like to start with like, where are you coming from? Like, talk about, like, tell us about, tell me about your childhood (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and just like what it was like to be a little empath. So tell me your story. Let's start at the beginning.
1: Let's do it. And it's funny. Cause as you were, you're introducing that, you know, and when, when you do counseling stuff, you do inner child work. And it was like, I'm dropping in and looking at myself as a little girl <laughs> from, from the outside. And, and it's, it's actually kind of a beautiful thing. Um, and, and a lot, I will say a lot of my understanding of my childhood has come from being a parent myself. My daughter is very much like me, though. She's a Scorpio and not a Libra. There's, there's (laughs) an absolute difference in some ways, but that sensitivity is, is so very much there. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I see that in her, I see the same, the same types of things that were happening to me when I was younger. I was always too much emotionally. I mean, in one way or another, everything was like too much, Um, It was too hard to handle, you know, that, that I didn't want to do this and I didn't want to go there and I didn't want to see this person. And I, you know, like that kind of thing and how hard that is to handle when you don't understand what's happening, you know, and like when, like when I do this with my clients, we don't go back there to like bash our parents. We go back there to be like, well, what happened? Like, (laughs) where did we get that message from so that we can change that, that memory in our brains. And, you know, I, my, my parents didn't quite know what to do with that. They were trying to, I guess, you know, assimilate me to the world, right? The big mean world. And you have to toughen up and you've got to, you know, have, have a tough shell. But like, I couldn't do it. Mm-mm. And I was just, you know, there were things that f- when, when I got frightened, I was terrified. When I got sad, I was super sad. You know, like when other people were experiencing something, I was experiencing it too. I didn't know what an empath was. My parents didn't know what an empath was. It was just, you were too sensitive. Mm -hmm. You've got to toughen up. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and you just reminded me of something. I remember I was so easily terrified as a little girl. And I remember the first PG movie I went to see. And I think it was like my birthday. And we were having like, it was like a movie birthday. Mm -hmm. And Um, we were going to see, I think it was like murder on the Orient express, like, or or clue. Like it was like, but it was like, it was a very mild PG movie. I remember being absolutely terrified sitting in the movie theater because I was at a PG movie. (laughs) And what was it going to be like? I was so scared that it was going to be scary. And I know for myself that I, you know, I like, you know, I, have been joking that I need to design a t-shirt that basically says like too sensitive and proud of it because all of us were told as kids, we were too sensitive, but you reminded me of this other piece of it, which was this idea that like, you know, toughen up, you know, Mm. you need to be like more courageous, more bold. And I definitely know for myself that there was this deep sense of, there was something wrong with me that I was so flappable that I was so easily terrified that I was Mm -hmm. so that I was scared of the flying monkeys and the wizard of Oz and Mm -hmm. that I was too timid that I wasn't, that I didn't have the courage and that somehow I needed to just like get with the program as, as you were saying, Mm -hmm. like this idea. And I do believe that some of it is our parents really did not know any better. Like they just really thought like, you know, we need to train our kids or, uh, you know, raise our daughters
1: to not be little wilting flowers. Absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, I, and, and I mean, it happens even now with me understanding my daughter and understanding, I mean, she doesn't want to watch most of the Disney movies, especially the ones that are more recent because they're very dramatic and they're very dark and the music is ominous and she, she, it terrifies her. And for me, it's like, oh, I get it. There's nothing wrong with her you know, uh, I, she doesn't have to choose that. But the feedback that I then get from people is, you know, the world is going to, you know, chew her up and spit her out. If you don't get her ready for it, you know, she can't, she can't go out into the world like this. She'll have her feelings hurt all the time. And it's like, first of all, she's like seven, <laughs> like we have plenty of time for her to get out in the world. And for me to teach her how to be an empath in the world, like we, we got this, but also like, I know firsthand what that's like when somebody just completely denies you as, as who you are and just doesn't accept that that is something that's part of you and that it, it's a beautiful thing, you know, because that's, that's what I see from the outside now of, you know, and and it's it's like healing my inner child to be able to look at my daughter and say, there's nothing wrong with you that you get super afraid. There's nothing wrong with you that you're timid around other people because you're, Getting blasted with their energy, you don't know what to do. It's okay, you know, and that and I feel myself right because this is how the empath chain works. <laughs> yeah. I then feel myself get squirrely because she's feeling that way, and then you know we're all managing this energy, except for the other person <laughs> who's not feeling it. They have no idea what's happening, no idea what's happening <laughs> right but yeah it's it's definitely that you know that that mentality of the world is the world is a scary place, which when you hear that as a kid and you're an empath who's easily terrified, I don't even want to go in it. Right.
0: Exactly. Well, and you know, the idea that we need to somehow condition our six-year-olds and our seven-year-olds, these little kids to like being tougher. You remind me of another thing, which is years ago, and we're talking years and years ago, I was babysitting for this family. And there was this little boy and he was maybe four or five years old. And so I had rented Star Wars thinking, like, he's a little boy. He's going to love this movie. It's going to be awesome. And I just remember putting it on. And within the first, like, five, ten minutes, there's, like, a scene where like I think the stormtroopers like basically like vaporize somebody (laughs) and this little boy is just sitting there with his eyes as wide as saucers terrified of the movie and crying and at the time I was like oh there's a lot more violence in this than I remember because I mean I might have been like 11 when I saw it the first time Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but I but my response was not this little boy is broken or wrong because he can't watch it. I was like, oh, I really screwed up. I didn't remember that this movie was so violent. And I just took it out of the, you know, like Mm -hmm. back then it was a, you know, VCR. Just took it out and was Mm -hmm. like, let's go do something different because Mm -hmm. it was just not appropriate. And it's sad to me that we live in a world where people are thinking that somehow the that that the children, by you know, like four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds somehow need to like they have to adapt instead of us like trying to acknowledge what they need and meet their needs.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and nurturing you know that yeah. so that they feel like they can be safe. You know, I mean that's it's an unsafe feeling when nobody understands you, and right. then and and it turns into. I mean, I can clearly see you know, where people pleasing tendencies come in and where masking comes in because you're like, wow, it is really unsafe to be me in these situations. I am affecting people negatively with my sensitivity. So I must do something to make it, you know, to make it okay, because I don't like how that feels when they feel that way, you know, and that's, that's a lifelong thing. If you don't figure out (laughs) that you're an empath. (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, and you
0: were saying, I think before we got on here, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about like just being a chameleon and all of the ways that like you, before you really grasped the magnitude of what you are and what it meant to be, means to be an empath, like all of the ways that you were sort of trying to bend over, like bend over backwards Mm -hmm. to meet or to fit in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because of that, the sensitivity to the energy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like, I think, you know, twofold, right. Like having been like, kind of, I guess I'll say scolded, right. Like scolded for feeling right. Mm -hmm. For being a feelings person, then, you know, you kind of understand how you affect people. You don't want to do that. You learn that you're not supposed to do that. You learn that you show up for people the way that they can accept you. And so mm. therefore we become chameleons. So when I'm with you, I'm I, I know you as the audience. I will perform in whatever way to keep homeostasis here so that I don't have to feel like I'm affecting you negatively, because that in turn affects me energetically because of you know that back then inability to have any kind of shield of or grounding whatsoever. So yeah, it's an adaptation. Because of not being taught how to use it or understand it and nurture it for yourself. Right. Right.
0: Well, and really being taught that the priority is other people's ease and comfort. Yes. And the idea of like, you want to be, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't mm-hmm. want to make people uncomfortable. And You know, God forbid you express a feeling because which and I mean, my personal theory is that one of the reasons why. Empaths make other people so incredibly uncomfortable is because we are expressing feelings that other people are trying their damnedest not to feel, (laughs) and so we're kind of feeling the stuff that's in the room. That everybody is like, we are the we are the ones who are pointing at the elephant in the middle of the room and the man behind the curtain, going, "Hey, there is something going on here," and a lot of people are just like, "Yeah, no, we're not going there." But I'm struck by how this capacity for Being really sensitive to other people, but also as you were saying, um, you know, being the mediator, being the person Mm. who wanted everybody to get along, because you obviously, like so many of us, felt better when people felt better. Absolutely. It sort of it makes so much sense that it kind of led you down the path of being a career mental health (laughs) counselor,
1: therapist. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's no surprise when you when you go on that journey, you're like, oh well, when you find out you can make money doing something that you already right. do. Right. 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 And right. you could hone in those on those skills and you could use it to actually help people. That's easy. Yeah.
0: Well, and what an incredible relief too. like I know one of the things that makes the healing work appealing and the counseling work appealing is because generally. The people who are actually coming to us are actually ready or willing to speak the truth. Yes. And so there's something about that the mask has been re- removed about doing this work, too, where it feels like you're more able to have a vulnerable, authentic conversation with somebody. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. unless you are, unless you are like a mandated therapist for like people with DUIs.
1: <laughs> it's so funny and that like, you bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what I was thinking is because of, my, you know, the way that my career has gone. I I mean, I would go in and I would burn out and I would go in and i burn out. So I tried a bunch of different things thinking that the burnout was because I didn't like the work itself. And the worst place, the place I was the least happy was like the rehabs and things like that, because not that people aren't showing up because they want help, but the help that they want is a little bit like uh, superficial at first. You know, they're not ready for that depth that needs to be there. So it was it's incredibly difficult to show up and have authenticity there because the walls are so thick. And it, it, yeah, absolutely. it's it, It's a completely different experience when somebody is like, you, you have like the type of medicine that I need to learn for myself so that I can go and, you know, it's like, oh yeah, here we go. We're we're in it. We're doing it. We're honest and it's going to be great. But when it's not that way, it's incredibly, it's excruciating. Like that's, that's the feeling.
0: Yeah, it really is excruciating. And I mean, thinking about rehab in particular, I I just thought of Amy Winehouse's song, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you're not going to make me go to rehab. No, no, no. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, that's sad. That song is her story is just so incredibly sad to me. I mean, just so incredibly sad. And, you know, and the fact that we lived, we live in a culture that in many ways really profited off of her resistance to recovery. But then even when she was not resisting it anymore, it was kind of like her, you know, her handlers were still really kind of like, hey, but, you know, we can't afford to have you healthy. You're wow. healthy. You're not going to be our cash cow. But, um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I, I was just thinking about like how often when it comes to those early stages of recovery for people who are expressing their inner turmoil through acting out through substance abuse and other things. I definitely think there's also the thing of like ending up in rehab because of an ultimatum, like ending up in rehab because it's like jail or rehab or ending Mm -hmm. up in rehab because it's like parents are like, if you don't do this, we're going to cut you off or we're going to kick you out or we're going to do any of number of things. And just like, so you end up with people who are like kind of willing to admit there is a problem. Yeah. but not necessarily willing to in like, just not ready, as you were saying, it's like really on a superficial level, yeah. but not mm-hmm. really willing to go deep into the work. So yeah. you did, you know, drug. so, so you were involved in drug
1: and alcohol counseling and working yes. in rehabs yes. and that did not work so well. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't work so well. I mean, I, when I say I didn't love the work, I think I mostly didn't love the companies that I worked for because I didn't, I, I believe that there's a lot of um, you know really bad things happening in that field. There's a real there's a lot of taking advantage and things like that that are happening that that aren't. It's not really client centered in a yeah. lot of ways. There were many many beautiful moments. I mean, I can I, I can actually bring to mind faces of clients that I truly adored and that they they did as much work as they could. You know, that as much as they could handle because you know you're coming off the streets. <laughs> you can't just sit the next day and be able to access all of this emotionally and mentally like that. And, but that was the expectation. And so you would see, and again, like the, the beauty of being an empath and understanding that being able to feel somebody's energy and feel their authenticity and feel their walls, if the walls are there. So, you know, some good work was done, but it, the, the field itself being what it is, it was, it's really difficult to, to crack that egg you know, because it, especially the temporary spaces that they're in, you know.
0: And the whole thing about understanding trauma and understanding how we protect ourselves in sometimes behaviors that look um, less than optimal or less than cooperative. And like, you know, giving support, giving acknowledgement, giving validation. I mean, you get somebody coming in and they're one or two days out of detox. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can't just dive into the gnarliest, deepest part of the pool and expect to be okay. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's way too much Like we need to establish safety first. We need to help somebody to learn how to regulate their nervous system. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we used, I believe that most of us use drugs, alcohol, food, whatever, because we have dysregulated nervous systems and we're trying desperately to regulate so Mm -hmm. that we don't feel completely out of our mind and out of our body. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, as you were saying, it's like, there's sort of this expectation of like, you know, okay, so now you're here, you're going to do group therapy and you're going to figure it all out and you're going to be awesome. You know, and then as you were saying also, I mean, I, I'm fortunately, I've not been involved in it professionally, but I've been around it in terms of knowing of people, you know, in stuff and, and you you know, the whole addiction recovery movement is definitely kind of the wild West. There are absolutely wonderful, wonderful places with great reputations and who are doing really amazing work. But then I've heard stories, you know, I've got a family member who's in, has been in and out of rehabs. And one of the things that apparently is happening is like some of these, some of these rehabs are like recruiting former clients or former patients to go out and basically bring new bodies in Uh for a cut, And like some of the stuff that's, and I did not know this, but apparently in certain many places, um, like halfway houses and like these residential rehabs are not even regulated. Uh Like pretty much anybody can put up a shingle and say, we're doing addiction recovery. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there are places that are more, have more requirements and roles, but it really is. <laughs> A wild industry.
1: It is. Yeah. And I grew up with family members in um, AA. So I mm-hmm. saw like the free, right? The free model, right? Like right. you show up and, and people support you, or you don't show up and you know, you do your own thing and, and like it's totally fine. Yeah. But you know, then watching some of the practices that you said, you know, that absolutely those things happened. And and I think truly being an empath in those spaces. I mean, I was out of my mind, not just because of what was happening during the day, but because of the knowledge of what was happening. I was pregnant. (laughs) The last rehab that I worked in, I was pregnant. I found out I was pregnant the week of orientation. So, I mean, the whole time that I was there, like I was so glad because I knew that I was gonna be able to leave there, but just watching the way that that they treated the clients as a number, as money and being asked to like, Call people's jobs and be like, get an ultimatum from them. Either you stay another week or we'll fire you and stuff. And it was like, I can't do that. Like, I can't with my soul do that to these people. If they are not ready, unfortunately, they're not ready and you can't have their money, you know, was my thought process. But, you know, you're getting pushed in that direction as the counselor to make them stay here, make sure that they stay here, doing things that are, to me, highly unethical. Um, You know, and then, so you feel bad for those people, you know, who are in such a young stage of wanting help, but being so afraid, Mm -hmm. so terrified, Mm -hmm. like these people watching somebody go through like, like kicking it's awful, you know, sitting in that room and I'm trying to get information from them and they feel like they're going to die in their bodies. Yeah. Awful. Right. And there I am pregnant on top of it. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I cried every day for every Mm. single day I cried Mm -hmm. because it was awful, you know? And, and again, like at at that point, I kind of understood empathy, right? Like, and I understood empaths, but I didn't understand the depths of what that was doing to me and the womb trauma that could be going on, you know, for my daughter. It's, I mean, we, I, I know that it's a tangent that we went on, but I feel like it fits in with all of, you know, how we see the ins and outs of things that in such a deep level, because we yes. feel it.
0: Yes. Well, and that's actually something I've been really getting at a whole nother level in, because I've been recording a lot of podcasts all at the same time. I've been on a bunch of shows, and I've also been talking to a bunch of my guests, like, you know, just like I've been kind of like, I don't know, cramming it. I've been doing, it and, um, and I've been really struck by the fact that, you know, it's not just about us feeling all the things, but we also seem to have this like Hawkeye view yeah. where we can see all of the interconnections and we can, or feel all of the interconnections and recognize all these pieces. And I've been getting at a whole new level, how the neurotypical person often has a capacity to see the world from like with blinders on, like they mm-hmm. see like they see what's convenient for them, mm-hmm. whereas those of us who are highly sensitive empaths, as well as people often on the spectrum, you know ADhd you know into into any of sort of these neurodiverse spectrums, that we so frequently are seeing so much more of the picture and taking in so many more factors and understanding all of the interconnections between these things, which to us is like, well, duh, of course. (laughs) And yet, it's amazing to me how frequently if you talk to sort of the allopathic medical model or, you know, the sort of the standard practices, they're like, really? I never thought of it that way. Yes. I mean, I can't even tell you how often I've heard. I've never thought of it that way. Right. You know, and it's like, well, how can you not think of it that way? It's all interconnected.
1: Right. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I really, it, and it's, it's validating to hear you say that because I feel like sometimes, you know, and this, this is part of that. People don't always like that input. You know, a lot of times people will see the like, well, I'm, I'm going to give you my worldview of it as like, I don't want to say being combative, but just, you know, kind of being devil's advocate. And it's like, I'm not even trying to be a devil's advocate. I'm, I'm literally seeing so many things all at once. And you add in the intuitive part of it, you're like, I'm tapped into all kinds of stuff, I guess, mm-hmm. but I, I don't question it. You know, we don't question it. Once you start to understand yourself, you don't question it, but yeah, you'll be sitting there and somebody will say, Hey, here's all of this. And you're like, Oh, but here's all this too. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's all, you know, I'm, I'm innocently like, let's, let's put this whole thing together because that's how my brain works. And they're like, no, thank you. I have the blinders and I do not like what you've just done because it feels like an attack on my, you know, on my, my straight and narrow path here.
0: Or you're going to affect my bottom line here. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. You're going to affect my (laughs) Yeah. okay. So going back to sort of the story of, you know, this journey. So you're, you're pregnant with your daughter and you're working in, and you had said it was your last rehab. Yes. So how long did you last there? Did you?
1: Nine months, (laughs) nine months. (laughs) I, when I say I I was, probably three months in. And I mean, everybody that worked, the the turnover was unbelievable. Mm -hmm, I was the mm -hmm. only person by the time that nine months was over. I was the only person left from when I started even there, there was just so much turnover of it. So yeah, I was there for nine months and that was about as as long as I needed to be to understand number one, this isn't for me the way that it is, you know, happening, but you know, having my daughter just created an entirely different view of life for me. And that was, that was actually when I decided, oh, I'm going to go out on my own because again, like how many times am I going to go into these systems and burn out before I realize that it's me going into the systems. that's the problem. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and the systems are so broken. I mean, I you know, as the daughter of two people in human services and, you know, my mom, my mom broke away and went into private practice as a psychiatric nurse, psychotherapist and hypnotherapist. And so she really liked, went out on her own. My dad stayed in, you know, stayed in agency work and everything, but kind of moved from, he worked in children's protective services when I was a child, like, you know, so, and, and I mean, he was in the worst of the worst, but then he moved out of that and went over into, um, like elder care and hospice, which I actually think, you know, he was very well suited for that. And, um, and I think it was probably a lot less stressful because even, Even though, I mean, you're dealing with people at end of life stage, it's a very, very different thing than when you're Mm. witnessing, uh, you know, children being abused on a daily basis. But um, I've been around so many people in human services throughout my life. And I've seen this phenomenon of especially the sensitive people, the ones who really care and want to make a really big difference, that point where you realize how impotent you are, like how Mm helpless you are, mm-hmm. how there's not enough funding where everybody mm-hmm. in the system is exhausted and burned out. They're not being recognized. They're not being paid well mm-hmm. there, you know, and then you're watching a system failing where, you know, if you're doing any kind of case management, it's like the resources are thin. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, it seems to me that the answer really is like, you know, if somebody's basic needs were getting met, then a lot of these mental health issues would not be there. And so, you know, that, that, that systemic awareness of just how broken it is, but I've known so many people who started in the human service agencies and then broke out of them to go into private practice because the agencies are so, I mean, the agencies, in my opinion, are a symptom or are of, of the brokenness of the system. And, you know, like, it's not like the agencies are just willfully broken. I think that they are, they really are trying to do the best they can, but with Mm -hmm. very limited resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I mean, what you just said, you hit the nail on the head of the, like, when you get into that, that space of like, oh, this is so much bigger than me. Like, how am I going to make the impact that I came in with my, you know, my wide eyed, you know, Oh, I'm going to save the world. I mean, for me, it it started in high school. When I was a freshman in high school, I was elected into what they call peer outreach. So it was a peer counseling, you know, service that basically it was like, anybody was able to come get me out of class. If they needed some support, we would go away on retreats and learn counseling skills. I mean, from from that age, I was, I was ready to rock and roll, but it was such a, it was a container. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I was like, so excited to get out into the world and like, do this, like I was doing it already. And I mean, it was like, oh, okay. It's not like that out there. (laughs) It is.
0: What a rude awakening. (laughs) Yeah. So you were really being groomed for this work from a very early age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really fortunate in that because I had two parents in human services, one thing I swore to myself like very early on was that I was not going to become a psychologist, a psychotherapist, <laughs> or a social worker. And I was not going to get a degree in those fields. I ended up with a yeah. master's in psychology and religion, <laughs> but I was very, very clear that I was not yeah. going to become a licensed clinician, like that, that was not going to be my path because I'd watched it. You know, I grew up in it and, you know, but if you, if you did not grow up around it, I mean, I just see that like so many people, they have stars in their eyes and they're Mm -hmm. like, they're so hopeful and excited about the changes that they can help make in the world and what a difference they can make. And then it's like, you end up in these ridiculous, like getting paid $10 an hour, or $12 an hour, working overnights in like in a residential treatment center. And it's just like,
1: right up again, like, it's like you splat right up against the wall. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of these, you know, uh when we get into it, I mean, I'm already starting to feel the overwhelm of like, Oh God, it is so deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. So many problems, but having worked in, you know, like I've worked in for-profit, I've worked in nonprofit. I've now worked for myself. I've worked in rehab. I mean, when I say I tried everything mm-hmm. because I knew from that early age, this is the thing that is supernatural to me. I can't do other stuff. When I go to do something else, I get bored very, very quickly. It is super unfulfilling and I've done it. I've worked in purchasing two separate times to try. And it was like, no, this is the work that I have to do, you know, and you see how certain things actually started to work and took their left turn and how things just never did work at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like for example, the first job that I got when I moved to Florida it was um, a community-based, so I would go out to people's houses and sit with them there. But a lot of them were mandated, you know, again, like, and there's a stigma attached to that. First of all, you know, like you're not giving somebody something that they want. You're giving, and, and they're just going through the motions. And it's incredibly soul-crushing, you know, yes. until you're like, if you're like me, I just kind of, and I've been at every place that I've ever worked at, I've always gotten in trouble for being me because Mm -hmm. I will not be the cookie cutter. So I would go and I would sit with people and I would not do like what I was supposed to do air quotes. um, Because to me, it felt like, well, I need to connect with these people on something other than I was sent out here because they misbehaved or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that. You know, I'm here as your ally. I am not here as your punishment. And there's a lot of those systems out there that these people are your punishment. They're not here for you. They're here because you did something horribly wrong instead of like, Hey, you've got trauma. How how, how do we handle what happened? How did, how did we get here?
0: I just got chills when you just said that. I mean, literally chills running through my body because it's like we are in a system that so frequently is blaming the victim, but also is like, it's all about taking away the dignity of people yeah. and I mean, I just fundamentally believe that while I think there is an extremely small portion of the population that comes out cognitively, like neurologically wired the wrong way Mm -hmm. and just broken and like who are truly in the psychopath, sociopath, like Mm -hmm. they just, that just been bad and wrong. Yes. I sincerely believe that for most people, that what appears to be acting out and appears to be bad mm-hmm. behavior is a response to trauma and is a response to and and that if you understand where they're coming from, even these maladapted behaviors that look like don't make any logical sense to the non-traumatized brain Make total sense if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of this is the best somebody can do to keep themselves to survive and to keep themselves going. So I love that, you know, and and it's so sad that you are an ally aligning with the people, like trying to be in a, you know, establishing rapport Mm -hmm. because I mean, fundamental bottom line rapport is the core of all this work. (laughs) Absolutely. So it's really ironic that you've got these agencies sort of sending you out into these mandated places where you are sort of like the warden Mm -hmm. as opposed to the ally. And actually, um, that just reminded me of my husband before he went into private practice, was working with adolescents in, Mm. in group homes. And What was going on for him with that was that he was put in a situation where he was both supposed to be the confidant and the ally, and also supposed to be one of the authority figures that was setting the boundaries and the rules, and these children were accountable to. Mm. And it's like, it's at cross purposes. You cannot be the confidant and the ally and the person that they can come and tell that they're acting out to, Uh and at the same time being the, be the enforcer of the boundaries and
1: the, and the discipline. Right. And yet somehow, right. Like even you explain it and it makes total sense. Somehow the people that are putting these systems together are like, that'll be fine. Right. Right. (laughs) And then wonder why it's not working.
0: Well, and I wonder if some of it is that, you know, if you've got people who are in, who's training in, you know, like, um, human services policy and like healthcare yeah. policy, mm-hmm. if, and management and business management, if they really don't have a basic understanding of psychotherapy and of psychology and of the human, you know, the way we work, like yeah. maybe part of it is that they really just don't get it. Like nobody ever introduced yes. them to the concept of rapport. Right. But, right. But it is it. I mean, talk about futility.
1: Oh, yeah, and it's yeah. soul sucking, right? Like because yeah. that's what you know, you don't want to be going in and out of people's houses that literally don't want you there. Literally, they feel like they as soon as you show up, they're guarded. You yeah. know, they're like, "I'm not telling you anything because it's going to be used against me." You know, like and I and I would sit in there like, "Well, I understand why you feel that way. I mean, it's probably true. <laughs> you know, like I, I mean, it is right, especially with some of the substance abuse people. Like, yeah, I'm definitely here, and when you mess up, I'm I'm going to be the one." that tells everybody that you messed up. And so why would you open up to me? I absolutely. absolutely like, I get it, you know, and, and there's so much with those systems, right? Like, so even when you think of me as the human, right. Cause they're not, they, those agencies don't think of me as the human either <laughs> of no, like no. what it's like to bounce in between all of these people's houses and to gather all of that energy and to gather all that information and to do that work and expecting, I mean, the reason why we have burned out therapists and reason why we have a mental health system that is not providing what it could provide is because it's about production Mm -hmm. over quality. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I would have to see eight clients a day, that's too many. Way too many. Way well, and eight,
0: many. and and thinking about it, it's like eight clients is actually like. I mean, I know people who've had to like where it's like they're doing like the forty minute hours, and it's like yeah. they're expected to be seeing anywhere between ten and twelve people a day or fifteen people a day. Yeah. And I mean, I I know people who are more in the nursing field where. People are coming in and need to talk about what's going on. And they literally, they have maybe a half hour, 20 minutes to
1: a yep. half hour to just kind of manage things. You, you can't do it. It can't. No. You, can, you have to sacrifice something at that point. Right. And quality, unfortunately, is usually the thing that goes because most people can't just quit their jobs and say, well, I want to do four a day. Right. You're going to get fired. Absolutely. You, they, they're, you're not being productive in those right. terms. But that's, you know, a more comfortable throughout the day so that you have time to cleanse your own energy in between so that you have time to gather your thoughts before the next person so that you're showing up wholly for them. You're showing up like clear of everything else and not just one back to back to back to back. I mean, this is why I would get burned out because in addition to being a human, being an empath, it's like, incredibly difficult to have all that energy, all that hard, tough, heavy energy coming at me back to back to back, (laughs)
0: back to back to back. Well, and I'm just thinking about, you know, additional factors, because I think that, In my experience, a lot of addicts are actually empaths, like a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of addicts are empaths. And so you probably have a tape loop going where you've got, you're in there as a highly sensitive person, they're in there as a highly sensitive person, not to mention the dynamics of like, usually it's not just them living there. There's other people there who are also Mm -hmm. interplaying. And then just even the energy of the space itself. And You know, as a female going into people's homes, there's like that level of sort of the sketchiness and the sort of the sense of like, is this even safe for me to be here? Just Mm -hmm. because the court has sent me in or this agency has sent me in, doesn't mean it's safe for me to be here.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I it just it's like it's the perfect storm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it really is. And for that, just being my experience and knowing that all of the other experiences that are out there, the social workers, like you were talking about with your dad, like having to, I mean, some of the places that you're going into and some of the threats that happen, you know, because of the the sensitivity, the, the nature of, of what you're actually doing and what you're providing, you know, it's absolutely not really seen the way that it needs to be seen. But it's, it's I mean, at some point, I just keep hoping that if we're loud enough and if we talk enough about what we know to be true from being on the inside, that if you truly wanted this mental health crisis to improve, then you, these are the things, these are the ways to do it. You know, we don't have bad therapists. We have burned out therapists who are doing the bare minimum because they're surviving. Absolutely. They're, they're absolutely, and not just the bare minimum because they're surviving, but because they're doing what they're told. Yeah, You know, yeah. that being the other part of my my career of getting in trouble all the time is, hey, if I show up a group with this packet and the group has something else to talk about, that's what I'm going with. And I will deal with how I didn't do the packet
0: later. <laughs> I will. I will say. <laughs> That, you know, I do think, though, unfortunately, there are bad therapists out there. Yeah, and that yeah. there that, and that there because I have I have personally experienced um been on the other side of the chair and have experienced people who are massively robotic, who were going through the motions and asking questions and not making any connection with me and where I mean, I'll never forget. when I was in graduate school and we were doing, you know, that kind of role playing thing (laughs) and we were working, we were doing an exercise on rapport. And so I was in the hot, I was the client and this other woman was the therapist. And I came in and just like basically acted like did sort of, you know, like walked in as a hot mess, like just really, really, really stressed out and everything. But I just will never forget this woman is literally holding her notebook in front of her and she's like, hello, my name is Julie. What's your name? How are you today? And I was like, oh, my God, do you not even know how to just say hello to somebody like she and she was like "Dear in the headlights. But it was kind of like, you should not be a therapist or a pastoral counselor, or any of that. Because if you don't know how to just basically like get out of your fear, like, like, it was just like, this is not something you need to read notes for lady. Like you're just saying hello here.
1: Right? Well, and I will say like, I feel because that that's a perfect example, because I, I use that example sometimes too, of like, how it was in grad school for me to be like videotaped and how it was like, nod your head and do these things. And in my brain, it was like, you got to make sure you nod your head five times. You know what I mean? Like, or else Mm -hmm. you're going to fail, you know? And it was like, well, sometimes I don't want to nod my head. You know, like that doesn't feel natural to me. Right. I think that what's missing in the training of counselors is the humanness, right? Like who's Julie? How does she operate? Who is she? What kind of clients does she fit with the most? How can she be comfortable with who she is Mm -hmm. so that she can provide good counseling for somebody it doesn't exist you know like i i can remember being you know you got now now that you're going to go out into the world as a counselor you have to conduct yourself a different way you know people are going to judge you if you are you know out drinking at the bar like all of that kind of stuff You like you you lose your validity if you i mean i can 100% remember that and it's terrifying unless you have somebody else in your ear telling you that that's not true I really think that's how we get the bad therapist because most of us don't go into it thinking we're going to get rich, right? There is something, there is some heart and soul that makes you want to do that work. But when you're not taken care of as the human, who do you become? You become that robot and it is yeah. so bad yeah. For, yeah. for both, right? It's sad for that person who wanted to, you know, get training and do the right thing, but it's really sad for their clients who are looking for some help and not right, getting right, it. Right, right, <laughs> right.
0: Well, and I sometimes really wonder, you know, one of the things that I've also seen is that it seems to me that there's also kind of like lack of knowledge, lack of exposure. I mean, and certainly if you look at the, I mean, my husband and I are constantly sort of laughing about the portrayals of psychotherapists (laughs) on television, I mean, oh, my God, (laughs) some of the horror, the horror. (laughs) But, you know, I also do think that there's there are times where somebody thinks that this is what they want to do and it's not what they want to do. Like yep. in the same way that, um, I had a family member who at many years ago had thought they wanted to become a massage therapist and went to massage therapy school.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And as they started to engage with other people and started to engage with like actually doing massage therapy on people's bodies, they realized this was for the birds. Like this was not for them. And they had to just experience it before they could go, okay, this is just not for me. This is, this is not where I want to be going. So I want to go a little bit forward because I would love to talk about like, you know, obviously you taking back your power and you saying, you know what, there's a better way to do this. So I'm curious, like, so you said that you left at nine, uh, you know, you were there for nine months. You left when I'm imagining your daughter was a fairly young baby. Now, I know for most of us going from agency or established like nine to five kind of gig to self-employment is usually not just a light switch that you flip on and off. So what was the transition period like for you? Like, how did you navigate from working in agencies to being, you know, hanging up your shingle and going into private practice?
1: Um, Well, so, I mean, it definitely being, becoming a mom was part of the the beginning of that process. You know, um, I had thought my whole entire life that... (laughs) I would be the working mom, you know, and that I would not want to stay home with my kids because who wants to do that? And as soon as she came out, it was like, I don't ever want to work again, (laughs) right? Like I wanted to have a life where I could be present. You know, I wanted to be able to control my schedule. I wanted to be able to take days off if you know, if I needed to, I wanted to be able to know that when my child was in sports, I could be there and I wouldn't have to be bound to what the agency rules were. And I had never really thought that self-employment was something that I could do. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, with ADHD, like just free-spirited, somewhat non-committal <laughs> felt like, okay. But I also, when I thought about going back to work, it was like, no. And at the time, um, my partner, my daughter's father, he didn't want me to go back to work. So I was lucky enough to have that time period to transition emotionally to before Mm -hmm. I started. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say that it was too long because it was only a couple months after she was born that I started trying to collaborate with people and trying to understand what it would be like. But at the same time, I knew 100% it was not going to be that clinical path. I -hmm. couldn't do it. It was like, my soul was like, if you're going to do this, you're going to show up as who you are. You're going to show up as that rebel who gets in trouble all the time for not following the path as, you know, the person who does not just do the cookie cutter treatment plan like through the book. Like you're not you can't show up like that. You're not going to have your name attached to that. So, I, I that was basically when I started to get more spiritual about it. I started to talk to some people who are more into to spiritual things because that was what it felt like was missing. I was Mm -hmm. like, we're not seeing these people as humans. I'm not able to sit and connect soul to soul. And that's what I wanted. That's what I need to do. Because when that happens, that's when the magic happens. So, you know, it it was a hard thing because at the time, I feel like it was like 2015. It felt like there was too much programming in my brain to believe that it was valid, you know, to do it that way. I also wanted to do everything online so that I could travel. Mm-hmm. People were like, "Are you kidding? You have to sit in the office with those people in order to have the feelings, to have the energy, right?" Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh tell and and God bless God bless the pandemic yes. for you know and and but it, you know what's really interesting. Is that so my husband and I have had multiple conversations about telehealth and about because he's a psychotherapist. And Mm -hmm. so we've had multiple conversations about telehealth. And what's really fascinating is he and I both love working virtually. We absolutely adore working virtually. Mm -hmm. It is it is so much less of a a strain on our energy system than working with people in the in our space. But he has one friend who has a number of psychotherapist friends who are not empaths, who hate working virtually because they cannot feel the energy in the way that they can if somebody's present in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I think we as sensitives are in some ways absolutely made for virtual work in a way that the people who maybe need to be in the presence of an actual person to Mm -hmm. be able to feel or pick up on any of their energy or their cues or their body language, like it's, it's much harder. So,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And I agree. Cause I feel uh, there's clients out there that are the same way. You know, I mean, I feel like I, I've got clients that are waiting on me to be one on one, like in person. They're like, when are you gonna do that? Because that's when I that's when I'm gonna see you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's not gonna happen. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to do that, go find somebody else.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I've thought I've thought about it. I've thought about it, you know, because I live near the beach. I've thought about doing like one day where we do like beach walks because I Mm -hmm. love the beach too. Like it's it's you know somewhat for me too. But you know, I I also have clients who will only talk to me on the phone and they're incredibly open. Because there's enough anonymity that they are like, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about your face, you know, and what your face is doing. And how you're (laughs) responding or how you're, I've had
0: some of the most deep experience. It's funny, I had one person who, when I first started talking with her about doing some EFT work with her, The idea of working via phone was like so weird to her. And yet I was like, if I work with you via phone in your home, in the safety, and you're in the safety of your own home and your own environment, you don't have to worry about like getting up and going elsewhere or doing any of these other things. Like you can just Mm -hmm. be with yourself. And we were able to go so deep. Like she could just sink into the sobbing Mm -hmm. of her Dramatic, tragic story in a way that if she was sort of like keeping it together and showing up at the office, I'm not actually sure we would have been able to get nearly as deep and nearly as far. So, yeah, yeah, I really love it. You know, there was something that you were saying about just like the systems not, I wanted to reflect on the systems not working and the whole idea of like we're supposed to be following these rules. Mm -hmm. And I've been recently um, listening to a book that is about complex PTSD and, you know, hang on, I'm just like pulling it up so I can tell you the exact (laughs) name of it because of course, like, I'm like, what is that book that I was listening to? What my bones know by Stephanie. And it is a book about trauma and specifically about complex PTSD. And, Really good, highly recommend it. She's not a psychotherapist, she's a journalist. And so she's writing, but she's somebody who's done a great deal of work. And so she's very, as she's telling her story, she's very regulated. But mm-hmm. uh, what she comments about is that the DSM 5 does not recognize CPTSD. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can't treat for CPTSD. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that is so insane about the psychotherapy industry right now is that we are, or or not we, because I'm not in it, but that therapists who are adhering to the system are bound to diagnostic tools or diagnoses that are in the DMS, D, DSM. When it's like human experience does not get, cannot be compartmentalized down into a label and a code for the insurance companies. But it's like, it's so sad when human experience, if it's like you don't fit into the DSM box, we can't even treat
1: you. Yeah. Or we just fit you in a box. Yeah. Yeah. Which we'll is just, the worst.
0: <laughs> we'll just say you have PTSD and therefore you get, you're, you're entitled to six or nine sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, well, you know, if you're still dealing with it after that, it's your problem, not ours.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that was, I think probably the top thing that drove me nuts about working. Um, you know, when I worked in smaller, I, I mean, I've bounced around, I don't know, probably five or six agencies and I worked in it, like a smaller one and it was right out of, right out of school. And I had done my internship there. So it wasn't new to me, but it was like that new responsibility of it. And I mean, I would be like, okay, but I don't want to diagnose them with depression. Like, I don't, I feel like this is just a situation that's going on. And it was like, well, the insurance isn't going to pay for just a situation. And it was like, okay, so now I'm going to give them a diagnosis of, of major depression and they're going to own that. Because I'm their professional, right? Like I'm the one that they came to to say what is wrong with me, right? Because that's how that language comes in. Oh, here, 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 here. Have the thing that's wrong here, with you? here. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and then, it's not.
0: <laughs> well, and then you've also, and and then you're dealing with the fact that you know the whole insurance racket. Then it's like somebody's got a code that they are diagnosed with and that they're going to be living with for the rest of their life, and it's a mm-hmm. pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, like we could go down an entire, (laughs) this is a different podcast. Like this is is not the Empathic Mastery Show. This is more like what's broken about the American Healthcare System podcast. Yeah, um, we could create
1: it and do it and it would be never ending. It
0: would be never ending. Yeah. And you and I have both made the decision to break away from it for these reasons, for, you know, right. to to be like, you know, there's a better way to do this. So you were saying, you know, you had you had the freedom to take some time off and to kind of decompress and work with and sort of just be a mom for a while. So, and then you were saying you sort of found some people to collaborate with. So talk to me about like, What does it look like now?
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's miles from that because I was still so like, it has to look this way and I have to get my license and I have for validity, right? Like I'm looking Mm -hmm. for validity everywhere. Now, what it looks like, it looks, I mean, I will say the, the reason why you see intuitive counselor is because I really allow my intuition to come in more. I would say more than the psychology. It like comes in and it's almost like I bounce it off of that to get more information if more information can be had and it's mm-hmm. very loose right because mm-hmm. i very much believe even with clinical trials i'm like there's 7 billion people in the world those 3000 are still a very small amount and even if you replicate that four times those 12000 is a very small amount so i take it with a grain of salt but it's it's very heavy on the intuitive mm-hmm. and very Experiential, like it's it's very much. um, It's funny that they glazed over Carl Jung when I was in school, but I'm like, he said it all along. People, the person in front of you, the spirit part of them, the energy field of them, the universal connection—all of this matters, and and you can't deny it. You Mm -mm. can't you can't not address it, and expect to get the result that you're looking for. So that's what i do now um and it was it was a process it still is yeah yeah it, the, earlier this year is when i dropped my license wow <laughs> that's how long i carried it for like you know validity but, yeah. but also for safety yeah. you know it just felt really safe but um yeah i mean it's it's a beautiful experience now to be able to sit with somebody and they can tell me that they were you know grounding or earthing or they, you know, like we can talk about going to get some Reiki after we've, you know, brought up brought up some trauma, you know, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. like all of the different ways that there are to heal that gets ignored in the psychology field, right? Like they're very mind and go in and ch- change the mind only.
0: Well, and, you know, as the more I understand about like, neuropsychology and brain science and particularly the way that trauma impacts our brain and like just thinking about the very th- the sort of the three basics of our brain brain stem limbic brain and frontal cortex the thing is that as soon as we are in a state of stress, that's like on a scale of zero to 10, a three or higher, mm-hmm. we flip our lid and we are not able to access our logical, rational frontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that we can cognitively think our way out of stuff that by its very nature has gone has gotten our frontal cortex to go offline is the most fast backward, like absurd and incredibly ineffective way to try to address stuff. We cannot think our way out of a situation that had nothing to do with thinking in the first place and everything to do with our nervous system, like going haywire. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad that we are, you know, like, but it's, it's, it is actually exciting in that, You know, in the world of EFT, we're inter, you know, there's an inter, there's a cross-pollination in this world with energy psychology and some of the clinicians and some of the people who are sort of in that kind of more research place, like there is a fourth wave of psychology that is starting to come in, that is starting to look at the somatic connections, that's starting to look at the impact of trauma, that's starting to look at and starting to say, you know, talking our way out of this is not working. It's not Mm going to cut it. We're not going to be able to get out of here by just talking our
1: way out of it. Right, yeah. And even the, changing the way that we talk, you know, our way out of it, you know, there's a lot of times that clients will come to me and they'll say, I've had therapy for a bunch of years and this never came up. And it's like, well, yeah, because there's a a, a path that you're supposed to follow, but I need to follow you. Right? Like, right. I can't just, I can't bring you over here. I need to know you and then, and how you're even feeling in your body right now, when you say those words, not just, well, okay. Here's the opposite thinking. So when you think that, just think the other thing. Like, I can't because br- <laughs> the way that I talk to my, my clients is funny sometimes. I, and we say brain, like mm-hmm. it's a person. Like mm-hmm. brain is holding on to everything, every single thing to make sure that we're safe. That is its number one job is our safety. So anything that looks, feels, tastes, smells like something that was ever traumatic, It's going to come in there with that information and we have to be able to change and give more information to it so that we can at least balance it out and be like, well, maybe, (laughs) maybe not, (laughs) right? Like so that we can engage that logical thinking a little bit more, but there's, there needs to be awareness of it. There needs to be, you know, like a whole other approach to it. That's not just, here's the worksheet. Or here's when you're in panic. Here's your five, four, three, two, one senses grounding. Like, oh, we need to get to root cause. We yeah. need to get to you know changing the brain, the the messages that are coming through, you know, and where that comes from is the trauma. We have to address the trauma. We have or else to address we're the just, trauma. It's just symptom management over and. over. Over Over and over over again, again.
0: or recapitulating the same story over and over again. You know, I mean, I, it is just, it's, you know, and I think that's one of the things about psychotherapy is that it keeps us in the narrative. Mm -hmm. Vanessa, I cannot believe how fast time has whizzed (laughs) by. I'm like, we are absolutely at the top of the hour right now. And we could keep, I mean, this conversation is so rich. We could just keep going and going. So before we end, I always like to ask the question, if there was a message that you, you know, the perspective you have now that you could offer a younger part of yourself, a struggling part of yourself. And I think in your case, like the person, the like eight months pregnant working in a a rehab and, you know, with massive amounts of turnover, what would be the message that you would absolutely want her to know. Like what what would you want her to hear?
1: The first thing that came to me was listen to yourself. You know, like I think that that's the thing that I try to get most people to do, but I needed to do then too was listen to yourself. Your body is is leaking tears every day. Your stress level is is where it's at. Listen to yourself. You are not crazy. You are not wrong. You are not, you know, you're not imperfect. Just listen to yourself. Mm.
0: Such an incredibly, incredibly important message. Listen to yourself and listen to your body. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because without that, we're, we're operating on programming and it's not always the best.
2: No,
0: no. Well, and we're operating on cis, on models that are about productivity and profit, not yeah. necessarily human, not necessarily people. Right. Is there any sort of last, like, I absolutely need to say this one thing. I think
1: that, and I have it tattooed on my wrist and nobody's going to see it right here. And it's the word believe.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that that's the one thing that is the hardest thing for people to do is to find belief. But from everything that I have done in my own life, everything that I've seen in my own life personally, and the ways that I've helped other people. Nobody is a lost cause.
0: Nobody is a lost cause.
1: Nobody. Yeah. There's always an opportunity to believe that there's something more out there. Mm-hmm. There is.
2: Mm.
0: Well, and I... As somebody who believes in the sort of the immortality of the soul, I also really believe that there's a trajectory that goes beyond this lifetime and that what might appear to be like shattered and broken beyond belief in this lifetime doesn't mean that the soul is a lost cause. It just might mean that this lifetime looks pretty dire, yeah. but there's alternative, There there's options and fut- there's a future elsewhere or beyond Absolutely. this one too. 100%. Vanessa, this has been such a rich conversation. It has been so just, it's been the true, true. Yes. It's so good.
1: <laughs> it so feels good. that way.
0: <laughs> How can people get in touch with you?
1: Uh, well, so I, um, I can be reached via email, vanessaperrycounselor at gmail.com or my website, vanessaperry.net. Um, I am also on Instagram at c.stars.psych. Excellent.
0: And we are connected via Instagram. So if you guys are following my Instagram, when, you know, just go look at my Instagram, you'll find like a post with Vanessa tagged in them, as well as if you're listening to this, um, you know, and driving or doing something else, you can always come back to the show notes. All of this information will be there. And check out Vanessa's podcast, Stigmas Anonymous, for some more awesome things. And while you're at it, Hey, head over to Stigmas Anonymous and give her a wonderful rating. And while you're at it, head over to Empathic Mastery (laughs) Show and give me a wonderful rating because you guys, it's the, you know, podcast ratings make the world go round and definitely help us to get the message out there. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being part of this. I
2: really appreciate Thank you for having me. It was
1: a beautiful conversation as always. (laughs) So delicious. Yay. Thank you.
0: As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And Thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please, don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.